Our scripture reading this morning from, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed from them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, all right, that's it. We're back in First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, the verse that we're going to pay our, our focus on, we're going to look at that whole passage that we read, but the verse that we're going to put our focus on this morning is on verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, overwhelmed you, overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you to be tempted beyond what you are beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, the truth is, I've never been on a cruise before. Well, I have taken Jungle Cruise at Disney, and I, I took the ferry from the French Quarter to Algiers and back. So I haven't been on a fancy cruise before. So I can only guess at some of the things that happen on a fancy uh, cruise. But, but when you, my, my guess is that when you, go to, uh, when you go to your room and you start flipping through the channels on, on the TV in there, I'm going to guess that what you're, you're not going to run across reruns of Gilligan's Island. I think as you get on that cruise, as you kind of get on that boat and you start thinking about where we're going, probably the last thing you want to think about is Gilligan's Island. Setting off for a three-hour, uh, thank you, uh, for a three-hour tour, but then the weather starts getting rough and then you're stranded for three television seasons and you can't get off the island. Now, you, you meet the globetrotters and you meet all kinds of interesting people, but you can't figure out how to get off the island. But it starts with high hopes. This is going to be great. This is going to be fantastic. And then all of a sudden you find yourself uh, shipwrecked. We don't really want to experience the Gilligan effect in life. 
life, do we? I mean, think about this, not only just for a cruise, but just think about this in terms of the other parts of life where we start out with high hopes and then suddenly find ourselves shipwrecked. We don't start school thinking... Boy, I'm probably going to drop out one of these days. We don't start a brand new job thinking, all right, this is good, but I'll probably end up being fired for cause. We don't go into a marriage and stand there before a congregation and perform our vows and say, well, this is nice for now, but I'll probably be unfaithful down the road sometimes. A minister does not get ordained before a congregation of God's people planning to have a moral failure down the road. You don't stand in the baptistry like this one or some other baptistry and and announce to the congregation and say that my life is in Christ and I want you to know that my life is in Christ. And you don't say, and I'll probably stick with it for about five or six years and then I'll wander off and you'll never hear from me uh, again. Well, we don't start. We, we don't have that in our minds. We don't ever want to experience that Gilligan effect where it's like, it's going to be great. And then we suddenly find ourselves shipwrecked. So what's our promise this morning? What is the promise that we're going to look at this morning? It's wonderful And I want you to hear it. It's great news. Here is our promise this morning. I can overcome temptation and spiritual shipwrecks. You don't have to experience the Gilligan effect of high hopes that end up in shipwrecks. It's not inevitable for your life. The promise of God is that you can overcome any temptation and you can avoid any spiritual shipwreck. Let's dig into the passage together this morning. It's an interesting passage because we're almost looking at it in three different layers. We're looking at it in terms of what God's Word is to us. We're looking at it in terms of what God's Word was to the church in Corinth, and we're looking at it in terms of what God revealed amongst His people in the wilderness. So we're almost seeing this at three different layers, and each layer teaches us something this morning. And so when Paul is teaching this to the church in Corinth, he's using as an example the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. And and what he starts with is is he starts by talking about a spiritual mystery. And the question really is, what causes these shipwrecks? Why is it that some people in life finish strong? And why is it that some people in life find themselves mangled up in some type of of off-the-rails catastrophe, and it doesn't go the way that it should. Now, you would think that this would be a, a simple answer, but it's not a simple answer because every story is different. And Paul also kind of starts it out with this emphasis on this, ministry, on this mystery. If you look at the opening verses, he talks about the fact that the people in the wilderness all shared these common experiences. They all shared these miracles. And he says every single person 
walked under the cloud, which was God's visible presence in that place. All of them walked through the Red Sea that had been parted and watched the Red Sea close up on the Egyptians behind them. All of them ate spiritual food, the manna that God provided miraculously every single day. Every single one of them had experienced drinking the water that came from the rock. Their lives had been saturated with these shared experiences, and yet Paul says, but a bunch of them failed, and a bunch of them shipwrecked, and a bunch of them succumbed to temptation, and a bunch of them never got to where they were supposed to go spiritually, or in their case, even physically. So, What's the lesson there? The lesson there is that it is not our shared external religious experiences that make the difference. It is something that is deeper inside of our lives. They share the same religious experience, but they have different spiritual results. You see, being at the right place at the right time is not enough. Again, just gathering and being in church is not enough. Just doing a list of religious things is not enough. In fact, what it tells us is that the cause of the shipwrecks, of the falling into temptation, of the sin and the disobedience is from a much deeper place, and that much deeper place is our hearts. In fact, the passage says to us, that they sinned, that they fell into temptation because they desired evil. That's a heart situation. That's where our desire comes from. It's not being in the right place at the right time. It is where is your heart. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But but we need to take just a quick time out here because it's really important that what I preach one week matches with what I preached last week. It's the same truth from the same word. And so one of the things that we have to do a little bit is we're talking this morning about the dangers of falling into temptation and the dangers of sin and disobedience. But the question I want us to pause just for a moment is, so why is this a big deal? Why is sin and disobedience such a big deal? Don't we live under grace? Don't we live in the age of forgiveness where Jesus forgives all of our sins? In fact, pastor, isn't that what you taught us last Sunday, that neither height nor depth nor things to come nor things past nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God? Isn't that what you told us this week? And now this week, you're warning us about the dangers of sin. Well, both of those things are true. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. The grace of God through Jesus Christ abounds and abounds and abounds and covers all sin in the life of every believer. That's what I said last week. That's what I'm saying today. And I'll say it again next week. It's going to be true forever and ever. So why do we spend time worrying about it? If I'm already forgiven, well, why do we have to spend time worrying about whether I fall into this temptation or this sin or that sin? Well, why does any of this matter if it's already covered by grace? Well, grace covers it, but that does not take away the impact of sin. 
In fact, I would tell you that when we sin, when we obey, disobey, when we fall into temptation, it harms my life. When you sin, when you fall into temptation, when you are disobedient to the plan of God, it harms your life. You see, the very things that God has given us as parameters, he gave them to us so that we would be blessed and that we would be strengthened. And when I step outside of those parameters, by its very definition, my life is harmed. Because his parameters are the blessings, the good place, the abundance for my life. And when I step out of that, automatically my life is harmed. I may not see it, I may not necessarily feel it, but hear me, we are harmed personally any moment that we spend outside of God's parameters. Not only that, but last week we also talked about the fact that the thing, the good work that that God wants to do inside of your life is to make you more and more like Christ. Every time we sin, we take a step back on that journey of becoming like Christ. We talked about what he wants to do inside of our life is to restore our lives to before the stain and the impact and the damage of sin on our lives. And so every time that we continue to sin, it harms what he wants to be doing inside of my life. But sin doesn't just harm me. The reality is sin harms the people around me. Now, it may be easier for you to understand this because you may be able to think about the fact that here are the things that other people's sins have negatively impacted my life. You can make a list. You know what? If this person hadn't done this, then my life wouldn't have been harmed. And my life was harmed when this person got this thing wrong. And you can make a whole list of the people in your life that have messed up their life and the damage that is done to your life. Because sin harms the people around us But I also have to tell you that that street goes both ways. My life is not just harmed by the sin of the people around me, but the people around me, their life has been harmed by my sin. My wife, my family, my church, my friends have all been harmed over the time by sin that's in my life. Their life has been damaged because I've been disobedient or I've fallen into temptation or, or I've missed what God has inside of my life. Sin harms me. Sin harms the people around me, particularly the people that I love the most. That's what sin does. But when we sin without thought or regard, and we just count on the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace of God, it mocks the work of Jesus. Imagine if, if you wa- followed me for a couple of days. I'm not saying that you should do this. But, but imagine if you followed me uh, and you just watched me and all I did is you discovered that I was the worst litterer in the world. I just took a bag of Lay's potato chips and I just threw them out the window. I'd finish at McDonald's and I'd just throw it out the window. I'd individually wrap a whole sleeve of Starburst. So you got the big wrapper on the outside. You got the little wrappers on the inside. The orange and the lemon are the best flavors. I may not even eat those pink ones. Just throw those away whole. And I just keep throwing all of those things away. And you're like, Tim... What are you doing? And I just went, well, somebody else will pick that up for me. Somebody else will pick those things up for me. I just know that I've got people around me that care about me. They'll just pick up the stuff that I just drop all over the place. Now, you've got to know 
that is not evidence that I love the people around me. That is not evidence that says the people around me who I just assume are just going to pick up my trash. This is not my expression of love to them. And in the same way, we can't say to Jesus, well, I know that he'll just forgive it. And so we just toss a sin here. We just toss a sin there. You know, there are some national parks that they are so concerned about keeping pristine and free of trash that they'll actually check your bag as you go in. And they will count out what kind of wrappers and things you have. So you've got a, a can of Pringles and you've got four Yoo-Hoo drinks. I don't know if that's a great idea to take out you know, to a national park. It gets hot out there. It, I don't know if a warm Yoo-Hoo is any good or not. But, but that's what you've carried with you into the park. They want to know that when you come out of the park that you can account for every single one of those pieces of trash. Because that park is so important to keep clean. Don't you think that your heart and that your life, that Jesus has died for the forgiveness of those things, don't you think that it is a complete mockery to just say, grace, grace, doesn't matter what I'll do, he'll forgive me tomorrow, he'll forgive me even while I do it. Listen, grace abounds. But if we are reckless about sin, it'll harm me, it'll harm the people around me, and it makes a mockery of Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness of my life. So I'm not here to heap guilt on us, but I'm here for us to understand grace and the call for holiness in our life. That's the spiritual mystery. He also gives us in this passage some practical examples. Remember he said that it's not the fact that you go through these religious experiences because, because everybody went through those religious experiences and it didn't make a difference for a whole bunch of people. But what are the practical examples? He says that the reason why they fall into temptation is because they desired evil. At the heart level, they desired evil. Now, as I'm reading that afresh this week, the word evil just jumps off the page at me. You know, when you see the word evil, it, it just sounds so evil. I mean, it, it's just such a dark word. And what he says to believers, he says, here's the problem. You desire evil. And so what he says to me is that I desire evil. What he says to you and to you and to you and to you, he says the problem is the reason why you fall into temptation, the reason why you sin, the reason why you have spiritual shipwrecks is because you desire evil. And I'm like, man, what kind of evil is he talking about? Well, he gives us these examples. The first one that he gives us, he says that they fall into the temptation of idolatry. It's right here in the text between verses 7 and 11. He says they fall into idolatry. That is the worshiping of other gods. They are worshiping graven images. And this was, true in, this was true in the wilderness where they built the golden calf. It's true at the end of the wilderness when they copy their neighbors and the, the same kind of pagan rituals that their neighbors were having. It's the same thing that's happening in the church in Corinth where they go to their, their neighbors and they, they worship the idols and festivals and parties that their neighbors are having. And it's even true today that we fall into the temptation of idolatry. 
Now, you may not have some graven image, but let me tell you what idolatry is. Idolatry is any time that we choose something over God. Any time that we choose an activity, a person, a thing, a practice, a place, an experience, and we hold on to that thing and say, God, I'll be with you just, I'll be with you in just a minute as soon as I'm finished with this. Anything that we put God on hold for, that's called an idol. And that's the kind of evil that he says that we desire. Now listen, if we take a quick inventory of our lives in the last 169 hours, 168 hours, whatever the last week is, and how many things did we put before God and say, God, hold on, I'll be with you in just a minute. That's idolatry. And the second thing that he gives us in this list is, he says they fall into the temptation of sexual immorality. Now, I think what, what I noticed in this is, man, there are some things that we think are brand new that are not brand new. We live in a culture that is saturated with sexual immorality. Well, so is the church in Corinth. And so was the people of Israel in the wilderness. I mean, they were in the wilderness. There was nothing there. But they still found their way to sexual immorality. It saturates us. We don't have time this morning to unpack all of those elements. But let me just tell you clearly, God has designed the expression Sexual expression to be between a man and a woman inside of marriage. A husband and a wife inside of marriage with each other. That's it. That's the list. Anything outside of that is what Scripture calls sexual immorality. One thing, one place, that's the list. And we have to be careful in our culture that we don't listen to a message that simply says, well, why would you limit yourself in that way? The most normal thing is to experiment. The most normal thing is to let your heart chase after what your heart wants. But we have to understand that that's falling into the trap and the temptation of sexual immorality. It's not new for us. We kind of feel like, oh, we've got this pressure that no one has ever had before. No. It's, it's been here from the beginning. So the second thing he says is it's the temptation of sexual immorality. So we got, we've got idolatry and we've got sexual immorality. You know what number three on the list is? Idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. Boy, you didn't see that coming on the list, did you? I mean, some of you were thinking, like, listen, I don't have any idols, and uh, I've been sexually pure. Man, I'm getting out of church scot-free this morning. It's a free Sunday for me. No guilt whatsoever. Well, now you got something to grumble about. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine this? That when God talks about the fact that we desire evil, he says, idolatry, oh, yeah, that's terrible. Sexual immorality, oh, yeah, that's terrible. Grumbling, Oh, listen, I didn't make that up. It's right here in the text. Now, now why does he join these three things together? One is because he wants us to understand that when he talks about sin and when he talks about evil, he's talking about the whole list. He's not just talking about the big ugly stuff that other people do. He's talking about the stuff that I deal with. 
A couple of weeks ago, we had a men's Bible study, and we talked a little bit about grumbling. Now, understand, grumbling is a challenge because, you know, some of us have the spiritual gift of grumbling. You know, we're, we're good at it, you know, and we're, we're getting better at it all the time. You know, I don't play baseball as well as I used to, but, man, I still got the grumble. Man, I, I still got that gift. I can still deliver like I ever have. In fact, I think I'm getting better at it. And so why, why does that matter? Why is, what's the deal with the grumbling? And we talked about in Exodus that the people of Israel grumbled after they went through the Red Sea, and three days later they're grumbling. But then we thought about it some more. The reason they were grumbling is because they hadn't had anything to drink in three days. Okay, I'm not a doctor, but that's a legitimate problem. Three days without water is a problem. And yet God was angry with them because they grumbled in that moment. Well, what are you supposed to do when you're going through something that you don't like? What are you supposed to do when you, when you have to deal with stuff that, that is not good or not right and really difficult? There are legit concerns, but they processed it wrong. You see, they were absent faith to know that God knows and he's going to take care of you. He didn't take them out of Egypt bring them across the Red Sea and say, aha, you're going to die here. He had the whole plan. You have to have faith that he's got it. That they were absent patience and understanding that sometimes my timing is different than God's timing, but do you know whose timing is better? I'll spot you the G. God's timing. That's the one that's better. And they were absent in terms of prayer. You see, part of the problem with grumbling is that I talk to myself, and, and I talk to my neighbor, and I talk to my friend, I talk to my wife, I talk to grumble, 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 grumble. That, that's, that's Hebrew for grumble. Uh, you know, all of that noise. But you know what we're supposed to do with those things? Is that we're supposed to take those and deliver those in prayer to a God who can make a difference there. In fact, if you take a look at the book of Psalms, a huge chunk of those books of Psalms almost sounds like the same grumbling that you read about in Exodus. But the difference is the grumbling goes this way and prayer goes this way. Now, we haven't had anything to drink in three days and I'm a little concerned. In fact, I'm very, very worried. And when we take those concerns and we make them vertical instead of horizontal, it changes it completely. And when you read those Psalms, almost every single one of them starts with the grumbles and finishes with the praise. Because that's what happens when we turn our difficult circumstances vertical. By the way, God gave them water as they needed it, and then they turned around the corner, and they found a place where there were 12 springs of fresh water. He had it. He had it under his control the whole time. So our sin, our temptation, can take all kinds of shapes. Idolatry. Sexual immorality, and even the grumbles. But what we have here, and where we want to end up this morning, is we have a powerful present, a powerful promise. We, we come back to verse 13, and I hope that you've underlined it. I hope you've highlighted it. Maybe even memorized it in this week. There's no temptation that's come upon you 
that is not common to man. Hear this. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice in this verse that God is present and active. When you face temptation, we talked last week or the week before about those times that we find ourselves on the dark side of the moon and we say, well, nobody can find me here. Man, temptation, spiritual warfare, these kinds of struggles, those are not the places where God is absent. He is present in that place. And as you face a hardship, as you face a difficulty, he is there and he is actively involved. He's not just in the neighborhood, but he's there and he's working on your behalf. He has his hands and his fingerprints over every single part of that experience. He is present and he is active. Hear what it says here. He's faithful. He says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide the way. That's an active God. Understand when you face temptation, real live temptation, that our living God is present and active inside of your life. Also understand that you are strong enough. You are strong enough. <clears throat> we have this sense when we face temptation, I can't make it anymore. This is too much. This is overwhelming. And listen, when I speak on this passage this morning, I know that I'm not speaking to an empty room with imaginary people. I know that there are people in this room that are struggling with real, real temptations. They are succeeding. They are failing. They are in the middle of seeing which side it's going to land on, whether they're going to succeed or fail. Maybe even in this very moment, they are struggling. I understand that that is true. But I also understand that the word here says that you are strong enough. Because the temptation that you are dealing with is common to man. In other words, it's been experienced and it has been defeated. You can do this. You can also do this because as we've been telling you in these weeks of these promises that the Spirit of God lives inside of you and gives you power. So it is not just you against some extraordinary temptation. It is the Spirit of God that lives inside of you that says you are strong enough to overcome this. And the promise here is that he will provide an escape and a way out. Temptation is never a dead-end place where there's no other options. You see, I, I think that's the whisper of the evil one inside of our ears. You might as well give in. You, you'll never get out of this. You're, you're stuck here. There's no other hope. Hear me. There is escape for any temptation that you may be facing. Now, the passage continues to say, that there will be a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That word endure means that sometimes that escape is not instant. Oh man, wouldn't we like it for it to be instant? Wouldn't we like it for there to be just a, a set of words that we could say that boom would take away the temptation and we'd never deal with it again? But that's not always the case. Sometimes the escape, sometimes the way out takes time and you've got to grind it out. You've got to grit your teeth and you've got to say, as long as this is a part of my life, I will say no. 
and I will overcome. Keep fighting because sometimes the escape path takes some time. So what's our applications this morning? Our applications are sometimes the first step that you need to take is many steps. Run away. Run away. Get out of there. Look at verse 14. In verse 13 he says, There is a way for you to escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Get out of Dodge. Run like the wind bullseye. Get out of here. And sometimes we are dwelling and hanging out in a place where the temptation intensifies. And you got to get out of that place. Maybe it's a physical location. Maybe it's a cyber location. Maybe it is a text message chain. Maybe it's a one-on-one -on -one text message. I don't know what it is, but if that's where the temptation is coming from, get out of there. Run. Put some feet on. Get going. Be gone from that place. Something else that we need to do is that there are some things that we just need to stay away from from the very beginning. There are some addictive things in our life that have power over us. And if you can choose to defeat those things while they're small, and it's just a seed, your chance of lifetime victory are so much higher. There are some things, young people, that you just need to stay away from because they will grip you. And there are some things that are so addictive that they will put you in bondage. Here's the thing. The evil one paints some of these things and says, if you want freedom, it's over here. And as soon as you climb into that place, you find yourself in bondage. I think probably one of the most difficult things that I ever deal with in ministry is when I sit down with someone whose life is in complete bondage because somebody promised them something that was freedom and it has absolutely shipwrecked their life. And sometimes the shipwreck of their life wipes out three generations at a time. I'm going to tell you that substance abuse. I'm going to tell you that alcohol is something to just stay away from. Now listen, not every single person who drinks alcohol is going to shipwreck their life. I know that, but I'm going to tell you that the upside is not worth the downside, and I'm going to tell you that the number of people who have had their lives absolutely shipwrecked by substance abuse that has such powerful tentacles over their life, man, just, just stay away, and if you're 15 years old, stay away. I don't care what anybody tells you. Stay away. Now, I'm going to tell you the same thing with sexual content. Stay away. 
man, you're, you're dealing with forces that are so powerful. Beat them up on the front door, not in the middle of your house. That's where to have the fight. Don't let them in to begin. So there are some things that you just need to stay away from. Run away, stay away, and then stay at it. Oh, my friends, some of you are fighting right now. Some of you are like, I've had some success. Great. Stay at it. Some of you feel like you're losing right now. Stay at it. Some of you are thinking, I'm doing okay now, but I don't know if I can do this forever. Stay at it. Stay at it. You are strong enough. God is active and present in your life. There is a way of escape. You can endure it. Stay at it, my friends. And then one last thing I have to say. There is grace. There is grace. Because I know that there are people who are falling over the same thing time and time again. And it's so devastating to their life that they have a difficult time interacting with the people around them. They have a difficult time interacting with their family. They have a difficult time getting up and coming to church. They have a difficult time praying. They have a difficult time looking inside of the mirror. But hear me, hear me, hear me. There is grace for that. For real, for real. There is grace for that. Now you may be thinking, my stuff is so broken. There's no way that there's grace for this. Hear me, Jesus didn't just come to clean and forgive the convenient stuff. He, he didn't come to clean sins number one through three or one through whatever. He came to clean the whole deal. And outside of the rejection of the Spirit of God inside of your life, outside of the rejection of Jesus and Christ himself, there is nothing that you can do that is outside of the boundaries of grace. Including that thing that you have been battling with for who knows how long. Stay in the battle. But understand, there's grace Grace, grace for every single place and every single person. It's not to be treated flippantly, but there is grace for you. There's grace for you. There's grace for me. If I can talk to you about any of these things, if I can pray with you about any specific thing, I'm going to be at that back table as soon as the service is over. I would love to pray with you. You can text me. You can call me. Call the church. My email is listed on the church website. I would love to be useful in your life for what God wants to do in your life. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you know exactly what needs to be heard and applied in this passage of Scripture. Lord, you, need to, you know which people need to hear which words. 
And so, Lord, I pray that everything else fades away this morning. And, Lord, I pray that it's just a conversation with you across this room, individuals talking to the living, holy, and graceful God. We pray this in your name. Amen.